morning, guys. How's everybody doing? Well, uh, as as usual, summer's a little bit different. Um, we uh, first of all don't have our normal cook team. The cook team was here at least in abbreviated form, made the coffee, but uh, we gave, give them the summer off, so that's why you're getting the breakfast tacos. And Robert was kind enough to pick those up. Uh, we appreciate that. Uh, also, we uh, don't put the handout on the table because Mitchell's lazy. And so it's actually out on the table when you come in. So if you didn't grab one, you can go grab one now. You'll also notice there's no homework. Uh, hold your applause. Um, I'm not going to give you homework over the summer. All I'm asking you to do is to um, read the passage, and it'll be at the end of every uh, handout. It'll tell you what to do next. Read the particular passage, and then read a portion of the devotionary that I wrote earlier this year. So if you didn't get the devotionary, we haven't printed them out. Uh, it's online. You can print it out. If you just are too cheap to print it out, we'll be happy to do it for you. Just let us know, and we'll get you a copy of that. But with all that said, we're going to jump into Second Peter. We're going to finish up the letters of Peter, and uh, this one's only three chapters long, but uh, it's amazing what's jam-packed into this little letter. Um, just the verses we have today, verses 1 through 11 of chapter 1, are so jam-packed with uh, incredible insights that we need to hear. And this is going to continue our, our look at how do we live a godly life in the midst of a, what seems to be an increasingly ungodly environment. How do, we, how do we pull this off? What does that look like? And so 2 Peter kind of carries that, that theme on, and we're going to dig into it over the next five weeks, six weeks, and see what... Peter has to say to you and I. So let me pray for us, and we'll jump into it this morning. Lord, we do thank you for your word that you ordained to be written by men, men like us who um, were flawed and who had failed, and yet who you redeemed, and then you filled with your Holy Spirit, and then you gave these words for us. And I pray that as we read them, we would take them in that way, that we would know that they were written with us in mind and that they apply to our lives as much as they did to those people who heard them in the first century. And may we apply them, may we do something with them, not just hear them and walk away, but may we allow them to change our lives so that we might live godly lives in the midst of ungodliness. We give you this morning and we thank you for it and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, the title of this is Life and Godliness. This is the second uh, letter of Peter. Uh, there may have been another letter of Peter. There's some debate as to uh, in this letter he references a former letter. Does that mean the first letter that we studied last semester or is it another letter that we don't have? Um, I don't know and I don't think it's important. Um, all we know is that Peter the apostle wrote a letter, and I've called this life and godliness because that's what he talks about in the opening portion of his letter. In chapter 1, he talks about this idea that we have everything we need for life and godliness, and that's where we're going to take it this morning. And really, if I had to boil it down, it's the subhead of this entire series is how to stay faithful in the midst or in the face of falsehood. It's interesting today, you, you can't read the paper, you can't go on social media, you can't look at the news, uh, as it used to be called, without wondering, is, is this true or false? Is this real or is it fake? Is it reliable or untrustworthy? 
we're surrounded by falsehood. And the, the scary thing is, is that falsehood makes it, its way into the church. Um, we bring it in. Um, false teachers bring it in. And that's really going to be the gist of this entire letter is that Peter is addressing the issue of false teachers who have infiltrated the church and are deceiving people. Well, that's still true today. Um, it can happen within our own church. It can happen in the church in general. And so this idea of falsehood, that we're surrounded by falsehood, not just on the outside, but even on the inside. <clears throat> and it affects how we live our lives. This idea of life and godliness is huge. It was, it was huge to Peter because he's written a whole letter with this topic in mind. He opens up in chapter 1, chapter one verse 3, he says, His divine power, His God's power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And we'll unpack that in a second. Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. So life and godliness are the key. And he says, He's given us all things. Now, now what I want you to wrestle with this morning is, do you believe that? And I hope you're honest, at least with yourself, and say, no, I don't know that I do believe that. I really don't know that he's given me everything I need. Because unless we wrestle with that, unless we're honest, at least with ourselves, and say, I don't really think I have everything I need to live the godly life, something is missing, what's going to happen is you'll be prone to, susceptible to, false teaching. Somebody coming in and saying, well, you don't have everything you need. You need this. You need this gift, you need this wisdom, you need this insight that I can provide. If you don't think you have everything, you'll be looking for something. And that's part of what's going on in the world today, is everybody's looking for something. And so what does he say? I love the way the New Living Translation puts it. He's given us everything we need for living a godly life. That's a pretty bold statement, right? That God has given us everything we need. I don't need anything else. And yet, we live as if we don't have everything we need, that we, we're missing something, that we've got to get something else. Or we may see someone else who appears to be more godly, and we think, well, I don't have whatever he has, um, and so I need what he has. Uh, or we listen to what the world says, and I don't have peace. Well, this will bring me peace. Or I don't have contentment. Well, this will bring me contentment. And what he's going to say over and over again is, no, you have everything you need. It's the whole theme of this letter. We have the unmitigated promise and provision of God that whatever you're going to need to survive this world, you already have. And you can rest in that. You can find peace in that. You can find joy in that. I and you lack nothing. And that's pretty amazing when you think about what we face. Um, the world is not getting better. I think it's getting worse. I, I don't think the intensity of the attack is going to lessen in the next year, in the next two years. I don't think anything's going to change, and yet we're called to live godly lives in the midst of all this. So how do we do it? It's interesting that this um, idea of life and godliness, we read that and it's almost a throwaway. I've been given everything I need for life and godliness. Well, as we've, we've talked about so often in studying the Word of God, you, you, you really do have to go back at times and discover what do these words mean in the original language in which they were written. Well, this letter was written in Greek, and 
The word life in Greek is pretty important because it has to do with not just your physical life. I have life. I'm up and breathing. I'm walking. I'm, I'm vertical. No, it has more to do than with just that. It's, it's my spiritual life. It's every aspect of my life. It's the wholeness of life. It's not just the fact that I'm alive. It's that I have a life that is abundant and rich and full in every area. It's what Jesus said in John 10.10. 10. I have come that they might have life, zoe. And what kind of life? Abundant life, full life, overflowing life, not just physical life. You know, I, I can get up every morning and I can take a shower and I can get dressed and I can go out and live my life and I can be miserable and unhappy and angry and frustrated and lacking in joy. And well, that's not life, right? That's, that's not the way we're intended to live as Christians. And so this idea of life and godliness is pretty important, that it's more than just being alive, it's being alive with the Spirit of God and everything that He comes to offer. Well, what's godliness? Well, Eusebia, it's, it's a, another Greek word that has to do with the behavior or the actions that show that you revere God, that you have a reverence for God and, and awe for God. It's, it's a life of piety, of holiness, set-apartness. So it's not just life, but it's a life that reveals godliness, godly character. So that's really what he's talking about. And, and that's why this book is so pertinent to you and I. Well, to understand the book, we got to understand the author. Now, there's a lot of debate about, did Peter write this book? And I always, I, I'm a simple guy. I read the book and it says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. And I make the assumption that Simon Peter wrote this letter. Uh, yeah, I'm not the brightest bulb in the box, but I, I tend to think Peter wrote this book. And I would say the vast majority of, of conservative commentators would say, yes, he wrote this book. But there are others who say, no, he didn't. And they have all kinds of reasons uh, for thinking that Peter didn't write this book. But we're going to jump into this thinking that, assuming that, Simon Peter wrote this letter. Because he says so. Simon Peter. Well, who's Simon Peter? It's interesting here, at least in the ESV, it's Simeon. Simeon Peter. Um, who is it? Well, we believe it to be Simon Peter, and the reason it's Simeon is that's the Hebrew spelling of his name. And, and, and there's a reason for that. Um, I believe that Simon Peter... The Peter who was an apostle of Jesus Christ is writing this letter, and he's writing it to a, a mixed audience that's made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And so he starts out with his greeting, his salutation, saying, I'm Simeon Peter. I'm not just Simon Peter. I'm, I'm Simon Peter. Remember, Peter is the name that Jesus gave him, the rock. His Jewish name was Simeon. And so he's letting his audience know that I'm one of you. I, I get you. I, I'm communicating to you. And he's going to tell them that I believe strongly in life and godliness. Remember, this is being written by an individual who's trying to communicate to a group of people, and he's doing it through the form of a letter. He doesn't have the uh, joy of standing in front of them, sitting around a table with them. He's got to do it in the form of a letter. And he's trying to express to them that I believe in life, fullness of life, and godliness, a godly life. 
Now, why? Why is that important? Because his own life was proof. Peter wants them to know, and I think they knew who Peter was. I mean, he'd been around a long time. This letter is probably written, well, he even says so, it's written near the end of his life. It's, it's written somewhere between 65 and 68 A.D. So this is six decades later from the time when Jesus walked the earth, or at least 30 years after Jesus left. So we're talking from the time that Jesus was born, we're now seven dec- almost seven decades later, and this guy is up there in age, he knows he's about to die, and it's like, this is my last hurrah. This is what I want to leave you with. This is what I want to communicate to you. And, and he's, he's going to repeat it over and over again. And he uses his own life as an illustration of what it's like to live life in its fullness and in godliness. So he's, he's proof. His own life is proof. Now, to understand this, one of the things that, that I want to encourage you to do, whenever you're reading a book of the Bible, in particular, when you're reading in the New Testament, don't just read it to read it. Don't just read it to say that I read it and I finished. But read it and dig into it. When you read Second Peter, it's a very short book, three chapters long. It doesn't take long to read it. You can do it in one setting, sitting. And yet, what you got to understand is that who is this guy? Well, you might say, well, I know who he is. He's, he's Simon. He's Peter. He's the apostle. He was a disciple of Jesus. Yeah, but go deeper. Why is it important to know and understand who Peter was if you're going to read this letter? It's because everything about him influences the content of this letter. Yes, he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, but he's also writing from his own experience. He's sharing his own thoughts. What what does he know about life and godliness? Well, quite a bit. He'd gone through a lot. And so what I want to do is I want to backtrack, and just just for a brief time, I want to look at Peter. I want to focus in on Peter, and and we're going to go back to the Gospels and see what, what does Peter know and what has Peter experienced that is influencing what he's saying to these people. It says, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, this is back in the Gospels, and this is Jesus and his disciples. It's in the last week of his life, and he's going to the cross, and he's communicating to his men, his followers, what's about to happen. So they go to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Now, this is prototypical Peter, right? First to speak, puts his mouth in gear before he engages the brain. He's always spouting off. He's he's a cocky, confident individual. And he goes, man, I'll never fall away. I'll never do that. And Jesus says, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I must die for you, I will not deny you. Again, cocky, confident, overconfident. And yet, what do we know? He does exactly what Jesus says he's going to do. He didn't expect it. It was the last thing he thought he would do. I would never deny the Lord. And yet, what happens? 
Later on that night after Jesus is arrested and they take him away, Peter goes along with John and they follow in the distance to the house of the high priest and they get entry in because John knows someone there. And so they get into the courtyard of the high priest and it says, now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean, but he denied it before them saying, I don't know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I don't know the man. It gets worse. And a little while later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. What happened? He did exactly what Jesus said would happen. He denied his Lord and Master. He swore, I don't even know the man. I'm not one of them. I never followed him. Don't put me in league with him. I don't want to suffer whatever he's going to suffer. He denied him three different times. And what's incredible is after Jesus died, was buried, rose again, he appeared to the disciples one last time. And John 21 tells us what happens. After they had finished breakfast, Jesus calls Peter aside. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. Then a second time, he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. Then he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? Now, why is he grieved? What's going through Peter's mind? This is the third time he's asked me this question. What's, what's Jesus inferring that Peter gets? You denied me three times, and in denying me, you basically said, you don't love me. And here he is saying, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And after the third time, he says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. What's interesting is that three times he says, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Then feed my sheep. Care for my sheep. Do the work of a shepherd. Take care of the flock that I'm leaving behind in your care. This is a guy that denied the Lord three times, really expressed his lack of love for the Lord, and now Jesus is saying, do you love me? If you do love me, feed my sheep. Now fast forward. Sometime between 65 and 68 AD, here's the elderly Peter doing what? Feeding the sheep, encouraging the sheep, doing exactly what he said to do, what Jesus told him to do. See, Jesus says, feed my sheep. Truly I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And then after saying this, he said to him, follow me. See, I think you can't understand 2 Peter if you don't understand the life of Peter. If you don't understand the relationship that Peter had with Jesus Christ. Jesus meant everything to Peter until when? Until push came to shove. Until things got dicey. Until things started looking dark. And then he basically bailed on him. He denied him three times. He, he walked away from him. And yet, what does Jesus do? Jesus welcomes him back. And he says, 
hey, follow me. That's the same thing he said when he first called him, right? When he first saw Peter, he said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. What is he saying now? After he's died, been resurrected, and getting ready to ascend on high, he says, hey, keep following me. Don't bail on me. Don't deny me. Do what I called you to do. He had denied Jesus, and yet Jesus didn't give up on him. And guys, I don't know about you, but I have denied the Lord so many times in my life in so many different ways. Not like Peter, but there, there are times when I've just said, you know, Lord, I don't, I don't think you're there. I don't think you're doing, you're going to do what you said you're going to do. I, I don't think this is working out the way I hoped it would work out. And I, in essence, deny him, turn my back on him. And what does this tell me? That he never turns his back on me. He never bails on me. And what's amazing is that Peter, the denier of Christ, received the gift of the Holy Spirit just like the other guys. How do we know that? The book of Acts. Don't miss this. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they're all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, including who? Peter, the denier. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Something incredible happened. This guy who turned his back on the Lord, who denied the Lord, I don't even know him, he received the same gift as the other men. And what happens? It's amazing that on that occasion, when all those people were filled, and they were all speaking in languages they didn't know, when it came time for somebody to speak, who's the first one to speak? Well, it's still Peter. And yet he does it under the power and influence of the Holy Spirit. It says, Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Who? All these people who had gathered for the Feast of Pentecost, who were there either as Jews or proselytes to Judaism, and they're there for the Feast of Pentecost. And he begins to preach to them, men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. To those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day 3,000 souls. I've skipped from verse 14 to 41 because... I want you to see the significance. This guy, with the power of the Holy Spirit, stands up and preaches, and the result of his preaching is what? 3,000 conversions. That's a pretty significant change, right? The guy who in the garden was going, I don't know him, I don't know him, I don't know him, is now declaring him, and 3,000 people are saved. What's he doing? He's feeding the sheep. He's tending the flock. He's doing what he was called to do. And it's interesting that he opens up this entire letter by describing himself as a servant. That word is really important because it literally means he's a bond slave. He's he's a slave. I'm a servant of choice, by choice. It literally means to be owned by someone for a lifetime. This is how he describes himself. I have never described myself in that way. Don't know that I want to, don't know that I ever will. I I don't want to be the slave to anybody. I I want to be my own man. I want to run my own show. And yet, what does he say? I'm a slave. I'm a slave to Jesus Christ. I am indebted to him. I will give my life to him. And he's about to lose his life. He will die a martyr's death in the days ahead. And yet, he's committed. He's willing to give up his will, his life, for the will of another. Who? Jesus Christ. What a major transformation has taken place in this guy's life. That's why near the end of his life, he can tell these people, 
You need to believe that you have everything you need for life and godliness. There's nothing missing. You've got it all. This, he's devoted himself to what? To Jesus Christ without any regard for himself. He has spent the entirety of his adult life, ever since stepping behind Jesus and following him as a disciple, to do what? To do the will of the Father. But it's the Holy Spirit who's given them, him the power to, to pull it off. All, all those years that he followed Jesus, walked with Jesus, he, really, he didn't have the indwelling presence of the Spirit, and that's why he was always sticking his foot in his mouth. That's why he was always in trouble with Jesus. That's why he was always saying things he shouldn't say, doing things he shouldn't do. But now he's been transformed, and he can live a life of godliness. Well, he's a servant, but he's also an apostle, and this is important. He's a messenger. He's been sent by Jesus Christ with orders. Orders to do what? Feed my sheep, tend for my sheep, care for my sheep. Take care of those that I'm leaving behind. Make a difference. Do what you've been called to do. This guy, Peter, had been assigned the task of taking care of the sheep. It's interesting that Jesus at one time told the disciples that there are sheep that are not of this fold. In other words, he's referencing there's, there's other sheep that are not part of Israel, Gentiles, which was a, a new one to them, right? They're, they, they're like, what in the world would you have anything to do with Gentiles? You see, Jesus died for all men. He died for Jews and Gentiles. And so he's telling them, take care of my sheep, both Jews and Gentiles. Take care of all of those who place their faith in me. He's a witness. He's a witness to what? He's a witness to everything that he's seen, everything that he saw Jesus do. That's why in Acts 1 verse 8, in his little sermon that he preached that affected the lives of 3,000 people, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Actually, these are the words of Jesus. He says, you will get this power and you will be what? You will be witnesses. Witnesses to who? Witnesses to everybody. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. You will tell everybody about me. What, is it, what does it mean to be a witness? It, it means to be a messenger. Somebody who has seen something and is now going to tell something. You know what's fascinating about that word is that you can see it, right? In the Greek, it's martyrs, and it's where we get our word martyr. Somebody who lays down their life. They're so dedicated to the message that they're willing to die for it. I don't know that I'm ready to die for the message. I, I think if push comes to shove and I'm putting the, the situation because of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, I probably will be. But at least in my little sinful heart, I go, mm, not sure. Not sure I want to die for the cause. But see, he was. He, he saw, he believed, and he was willing to die for it. And what is he supposed to do? Tell everything that he's seen. That's why in his message, he said, this Jesus God raised up, and of that, we are all witnesses. We saw it. We, we met with him after he resurrected from the dead. We, we knew he was dead. We went to the tomb. It was empty, and then he appeared to us. He, he showed himself. We saw the nail prints in his hands and his feet. He goes on and says, you denied the holy and righteous one speaking to the Jews and asked for a murder to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And so what is he doing? He's witnessing. He's telling. This is, this is what we saw. This is what we experienced. And who's he telling it to in this letter? 
He's telling it to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. He's writing to these people and he's encouraging them because they too are believers, followers of Jesus Christ. He's writing to those. Who, who are those? Those who have obtained the same faith that we've obtained. Why, why does Peter make that statement? Because he wants them to understand that I may be an apostle, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I may, may be one of the sent ones. But guess what? My faith is no better than yours. I have no more cred with God than you do. I don't have anything special that you don't have. That's this whole point, right? You have everything you need for life and godliness. You've got the same faith as I do. Everybody stands on equal footing at the base of the cross, right? If you've been to seminary, it doesn't make you more godly. If you've been in Christ for 50 years, it doesn't make you more godly than somebody that's been in Christ for five years. That's what he wants them to understand. You have everything you need just like I have everything I need. His apostleship wasn't a badge of honor. It didn't earn him, earn him any credibility with God. They all had come to faith in the same way, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Faith in Christ. That's all it takes. And when you place your faith in Christ, you get the righteousness of Christ. That's why Paul was able to say, the Apostle Paul, I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself is what? Based on faith, faith alone, faith in Christ alone. Not based on what you do, what you've earned. Otherwise, it's going to be based on your effort and you get to boast about it. But that's not how this works. I love what Martin Luther says about this, this idea that I get Christ's righteousness. When I place my faith in him, I get his righteousness. He says there's two kinds of Christian righteousness. The first is alien righteousness. That's the righteousness of another instilled from without. This is the righteousness of Christ by which he justifies through faith. It ain't my righteousness. I don't have any righteousness really to bring. All of my righteous deeds are as filthy rags, Isaiah says. And so you and I don't bring anything to the foot of the cross. We just bring our sins and we exchange our sins for what? His righteousness. And that's what Peter's telling, telling these guys. Don't you know that, that, that when Peter met Jesus on the shore there after breakfast and, and looks, has to look Jesus eye to eye that he's wrestling with guilt and conviction and shame, and yet what does he get? An invitation to just keep following. He doesn't get lambasted. He doesn't get ridiculed. Jesus doesn't go, what were you thinking, you moron, you loser? No, he says, follow me. Come on. We got a lot to do. You're going to get the Spirit. You're going to be empowered, and you're going to be my witness. R.C. Sproul says this, imputation, that's, that's this, this idea that I am imputed the righteousness of Christ. He takes on my sin, and I'm imputed his righteousness. It means that the righteousness of Jesus is counted for me the moment I believe in Jesus Christ. That righteousness is an alien righteousness. In other words, it comes from without. It belongs to Christ. When I put my trust in him, he imputes or counts to me his righteousness. And on the basis of that, that imputed righteousness, God declares me just right now. So that if I die right now, I go to heaven right now because I've got all the righteousness I will ever need to get there. 
namely the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, why am I belaboring this point? Because for, for us to understand what Peter means with that, you have everything you need for life and godliness, it begins here. There's nothing more you need to do, right? There's nothing more you need to earn favor from God with. It's all been done for you. It's been taken care of. You've got the Holy Spirit. You've got the Word of God. You've got the righteousness of Christ. You have everything you need. And so he goes on and says, now may, based on that, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. What, what an incredible statement. It's, it's, it's almost a throwaway. We read it and go, well, it's just his weird form of greeting. No, he's trying to let them know something really important. Grace and peace. Based on the fact that you have everything you need, based on the fact that I know all about life and godliness, let me tell you something. You've got grace and peace. Grace and peace available to you. And those words, again, are tossaways for us. We've heard them so many times that they no longer have any meaning. They're just like piety statements, you know, church words that we use. And they they don't mean what they should mean. But for Peter, they meant everything. This idea of grace and peace. Why? Because he had experienced the grace of God. And he knew what it was like to have peace with God. The word grace is charis, and it's, it's, it's a powerful word. It's about love. It's about grace. It's about mercy, the mercy of God. Him showing us undeserved benevolence, kindness. I didn't do anything to deserve it. And again, when Jesus, Jesus stood there with Peter and Peter looked into his eyes, what he received from him was not condemnation, but, but love. He received grace, God's favor toward the unworthy, God's benevolence toward the undeserving. See, guys, never let it escape your mind that you have been blessed with the grace of God in, in so many ways. Yes, your salvation, but the idea that you have the spirit, that you have the power, you have everything you need for life and godliness, that's the grace of God. And here's, here's the deal, you can't multiply it. I don't think what Peter's saying is, I hope you get some more grace from God. I hope God's grace improves for you. No, you've got all the grace you need. I don't need more of it because I've already received it in the form of Jesus Christ. Greater love has no man than to lay down his life for a brother. He, I, don't, I don't need any more grace. Listen to what this, this says from the lips of Jesus himself. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We have everything we need. We have all the grace we're ever going to get. I don't need more. There are denominations out there that teach that you're, you're missing some grace. And unless you get this gift or you do this thing, you'll never have the fullness of God's grace. That's, that's not true. And what it does is it sets us up for failure. Paul wrote to Timothy, he says, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent man, yet because I acted in ignorance and unbelief, I was shown mercy. And the grace of our Lord overflowed to me along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. I don't need any more of God's grace. I've got all that I need. I got it at salvation. And that grace is sufficient. Sufficient to what? Help me live a life of godliness and to bring me peace. This, this idea of peace is, is again, a, 
a concept that we don't really understand, that we really don't think about. But I want you to understand, because Peter wants you to understand that you have peace with God. You are no longer an enemy of God. That's what Paul writes in Romans. Since we have been justified, made right by faith, right with God by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You, you have peace with God. At no point is God up in heaven with his arms folded, looking down at you, thinking, what a moron, what an idiot, what a loser. Why did I ever save him? Save him? You're at peace with God. That doesn't mean you're always in a right relationship with God, right? But you're at peace with God. There's no more anger directed at you, no more condemnation. And we need to embrace that. But not only that, but we're at peace with one another. And this is huge. Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations, and he made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating one group, one people, the church, the body of Christ. And we should be living in peace with one another. We have peace with God. We should have peace with one another. But right now in our world, we have what? Anything but peace. And it's infiltrating the church causing discord, causing disunity. So what, is, what does Peter do? This is where he nails it for them. Verse 3, His, God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He granted us His precious promises. He has given us everything we need. Everything we need. He's given us promises so that through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature. That's the whole point, right? Is that we've got this divine nature. Let's live it out. Let's live like who we are. Let's live as sons and daughters of God, heirs of the kingdom, because we've escaped from the corruption that is in the world. So we've got these promises. We've got a divine nature. Why aren't we living it out? Why, why aren't we exhibiting what we have why don't we tend to live out the things that we've been given if he's truly given us all that we need what's our problem i don't think the problem's with god right because here's what peter lists he says you've got grace peace power promises knowledge and a divine nature then why are we struggling i think it's because we don't believe this at the end of the day, we don't really believe we have these things, that we have the grace of God, the peace of God, the power of God. We have all these promises of God. and We may believe there are promises, we just don't believe they're going to happen. We don't have a sufficient knowledge of God, and therefore we don't live out the divine nature given to us by God. Zane Hodges writes this, one of the great lessons of 2 Peter is that to maintain a holy life in a world like ours we must be deeply rooted in the prophetic promises of God's Word. Above all, we must hold fast to that blessed hope of the coming again of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. we got to hold on to the promises. we got to keep our eyes focused on what's to come. We've talked about this over the last two series that we've done, the kingdom of God and then First Peter, that you and I have to keep our eye on the prize. Peter goes on and says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and with virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. And we read these verses and we go, 
Wow, okay, great. Which one do I choose? All of them. I hope this sounds impossible to you. I really do. I hope you look at this and go, where do I begin? But what's really interesting is the way Peter has laid this out, it's almost, it should appear to us almost like a, a stepladder. It, it starts at the bottom with faith, and then each one builds on the other. You don't skip a rung. You don't miss a rung. Each one of these is meant to build upon the other until we reach godliness our glorification. Don't take them independently. Don't say, well, I'm going to work on brotherly love because I'm really screwed up on that one. No, you begin with faith and you build on top of each one on top of the other. Supplement your faith with what? Virtue, moral excellence. It begins there. It begins with the way you live your life. And then you add to that a growing knowledge of God, study of his word. It begins with self-control. Each one's dependent upon the other. Steadfastness, which is patient endurance. You, if you go out today and you just try to be patient, you're going to lose. If you don't start with virtue, if you don't then grow in your knowledge of God's Word and you don't, through that, learn self-control, self-discipline, you're never going to be patient. And that's what we do is we handpick the one we think we need to work on. You know what most of us work on is see this one, godly behavior. I'm going to go act godly. Well, good luck with that. If you don't do them in the sequence that he's got here, it's going to fail ultimately. I don't know about you, but I have trouble with this one, brotherly affection, because most of you are hard to love. I know I'm hard to love. It's hard to love others if you don't supplement your faith with these things in this order, knowing that God's going to perfect you and help you become what you need to be and ultimately love, selfless, sacrificial love as Christ model for us. So all of this has to do with what? It has to do with us being like Christ, living out the life of Christ. Look what he says, whoever lacks these qualities, and this is huge. If you lack these qualities, you're nearsighted. You're so nearsighted that you're blind, having forgotten that he is, you have been cleansed from your former sins. You're basically blind. You don't even see the truth. If there's no increase in these things, there's no effectiveness in your life. If these things are not increasing, you've got, you're, you're basically living a fruitless life, he says. You're living a blinded life. You're living in delusion. Why is that important? Because he's going to go on to say, and we'll look at it next week, that you've got a problem in your midst. You've got false teachers who are teaching false truth, and you need to understand Otherwise, you live in blindness, and you'll always live an ineffective, unfruitful, unproductive life. So verse 10, he says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an inheritance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he says, confirm. What does he mean? How do you prove you've been called? How do you prove to somebody that you really are a follower of Christ? What's the evidence that proves that your faith is real? Well, he's just laid it out for us, right? By these things, these character qualities that should show up in your life. And then he says, practice them. Live them out. Take advantage of everything that God has given you. Grace, peace, love, mercy. Put them all to use. 
every day of your lives. And that's what the rest of the letter is going to be about as he helps us understand what does that look like in daily life. For in this way, as you practice these things, do it with this in mind. There's an eternal kingdom waiting for you. We've, again, talked about this for a long time now. And we're going to keep talking about this because the scriptures seem to talk about this. If we don't keep our eyes on the promise of the eternal kingdom to come, we'll never make it here. Doesn't mean we won't be saved. Doesn't mean we won't survive this mess. It just means that we will never enjoy the life and godliness that God has in store for us if we don't keep our eye on the prize. So you, you got to live faithfully in the here and now with your hope focused on the hereafter. And for many of us, that's really hard to do, right? I can't see the kingdom. I don't know exactly what it looks like. I'm not there yet. I'm here. And I get so focused on the here that I forget about the there. What does God have in store? The promises of God, He will keep you. He will one day glorify you. He will one day remove all sin from you. And you will be like Christ. But if we don't keep that as the goal, we're going to find it hard to stay faithful in the midst of all the mess going on around us. So here's your, your questions for today. And I know we've given the table shepherds off, so your table shepherd may not be here. But somebody, be a Peter, speak up and help lead these questions. Why do you think we find it so difficult to remain faithful in the here and now while focusing on the hereafter? What makes that so hard? Why do we struggle with that? Secondly, go back and look at that list of spiritual supplements in verses 5 through 6. Which ones could you use to have an extra dose of? Here's the danger. If you pick one, don't just focus on that one because, again, it's sequential. If that's a problem, it's because you're probably lacking some of the ones ahead of it. They're all important. Then finally, in what ways does your behavior prove that you don't believe God has provided all you need for life and godliness? And what does Paul suggest you do? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these men. And I pray as we do this study in this very short but powerful book that you would open our eyes to see the truth that we really do have everything we need for life and godliness. We don't need anything more. We just need to avail ourselves of what we already have. Thank you, Father, that you have provided us all these things through your son, Jesus Christ. Now, may we believe it and embrace it and apply these things to our lives each and every day with the help of the Holy Spirit and the encouragement of one another as we live in this world that we might bring glory and honor to you with our lives as we await the blessed promise of the return of Christ. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.